Hello and welcome to another episode of the Loaded Basis Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4. As always, my name is Nick Wilson. Doing a solo episode today. Alessandro's out doing his civic duty, getting his second dose of the vaccine. So good on Alessandro. Uh, unfortunately, he was not able to join me for the interview with our guest we have today. Uh, I'm not going not gonna to go too deep into it because we will have to do the full interview, but Derek Cardi, we had we interviewed Derek Cardi today, which was an awesome grab. Uh, he does the Bat and the Bat X projection systems, or I shouldn't say he does them. He he created them. Uh, so if you guys don't know what projection systems are, and you'd like to know, super interesting stuff. I know some of people out there, some of our listeners even who I've spoken to, are skeptical of projection systems, skeptical of statistics in general. But Derek makes a lot of compelling cases as to why you should care about these things, and maybe even implement them in your own lives, or specifically uh, if you play fantasy baseball. That these are things that could give you strategic advantages. We talked about a lot of interesting, super interesting things. We talked about whether or not being hot is something that's statistically sound, right? Some people believe that hot streaks are a real thing, or rather statistically you can uh, strategize with hot streaks. Derek has an opinion on it. A hot, I don't, I don't want to say a hot take because I don't want to sound like I'm saying you know hot takey garbage, but uh, his take I think may differ from a lot of people's. Um, in the fantasy baseball and in the statistical community, his take is pretty in line with what a lot of people believe. But, you know, hot streaks, well, we talked about that. We also talked about a number of things, just again, what are projection systems and what they do and what they hope to accomplish. So stick around for that. But before we move on, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping, some news and notes. Mets place Carlos Carrasco on the 60-day IL. I'm sure this is just for a roster spot. Perhaps he was not coming along the, exactly the way they wanted in his rehab. I know that he did a five-inning bullpen session, and his fastball is topping out at 96. This is a good sign, but, I mean, they they might want the roster spot. I, I kind of understand that. I doubt that if he was fully progressing, they would sacrifice two weeks of Carlos Carrasco in the majors versus just a roster spot. Uh, however, I do believe that maybe he was just not progressing the way that they wanted him to. Keep in mind that the the minor league season started, so perhaps they just want to get him in there more, get him a couple more rehab assignments before he starts pitching in the majors. Uh, remember, there was a COVID season last year, obviously, so he didn't get the full workload. Maybe this is just more ramp-up time for him because he didn't get it in spring training. And that roster spot is also useful. Right, the there are some teams that are kind of stuck. Right, Sixto Sanchez, for example, on the Marlins, he is not on the IL, but he's taking up a roster spot because he's at the alternate site. And I'm sure if any there's an injury or something, they're going to have to make a tough call there because Sixto is taking up the roster spot. So keep in mind, this is a funky season coming off of COVID, and roster spots are important. Now Thursday, moving on, both both the Mets and the Yankees played. Uh, the Yankees faced the Astros. It was McCullers versus Cole. There were boos. It was a crazy game. Uh, the boos were so bad, actually, that the that the Astros complained to the league. Now, Alessandro uh, and I were texting the other day, and Alessandro made a really good point, which was if the if MLB had punished the Astros appropriately, uh, whether or not logistically that was feasible, but if the Astros were punished. I think fans may be less harsh, but because there was no punishment, fans are taking it to their own hands. We've seen trash cans being taken away. We've seen 
all sorts of just uh, shenanigans going on in these games, and this game did not disappoint. Now, just in terms of the production in the game, Giancarlo Stanton is going off right now. Uh, speaking of <laughs> speaking of hot streaks, um, Stanton is in his 11 game hit streak is batting 500 with five home runs, 10 RBIs. He's slugging 896. He is 24 for his last 48. So in terms of uh, long streaks where batters are uh, you know clobbering the ball, 24 for 48 is is remarkable. Um, he's raised his average from 158 to 314. He went deep in this game, so he's continuing that that uh, streak. He's looking really good at the plate right now. Uh, he's settled in. What's also great to see is Clint Frazier. Clint Frazier also went deep in this one. Uh, unfortunately, the Yankees did lose despite Garrett Cole going seven innings, five hits, two earned runs. For Garrett Cole, you know, that's not one of his better starts, but still very respectable. Uh you know, the Yankees' bullpen just kind of didn't really hold it down. Chad Green uh, got taken deep by Altuve in the eighth for a three-run shot. Um, Justin Wilson also got taken deep off of Maldonado. The final score was 7-4. to four. Now, moving on to the Mets. The Mets faced the Cardinals. Uh, they were looking to get back to 500 and split the series, and they did just that on the backs of Taiwan Walker, who by the way, looked fantastic. Like, he's been somebody that I've been, I've wanted to talk about, right? We know he has that that increased velo on the fastball, but his other pitches are looking really good, too. That slider's getting whiffs, it's getting called strikes, and he's throwing it for strikes, and it's awesome. You love to see that. Um, he went seven innings, one hit, zero earned runs, zero walks. Also, command has been uh, his, you know, his bugaboo at times. No walks in this game over seven hits, and as I mentioned, eight Ks. Uh, he got Ks on fastballs. He got Ks on that upper 90s fastball, 95, 96, that, the increased velocity there. He got Goldschmidt to go uh, to K, excuse me, three times, looking and swinging. Um, he's getting Ks. He's uh, jamming lefties. He's going away to righties. He's getting the slider to expand the zone for swinging strikes. This is looking really good. Like, I'm not making any promises on Taiwan Walker. I don't know if he's going to be this sharp all the time. He's had some clunkers. But, man, if he can keep doing what he's doing, just getting these called strikes, uh, painting corners, and getting that high, working that high fastball, sort of like Jake Odorizzi was able to do uh, when he went to Minnesota, uh, I think I think we're going to do well with, with Taiwan Walker. Now, uh, the Mets scored three runs on walks in this game, but they did leave 17 runners in scoring position. Uh, that's that You don't want to hear that. It's really tough uh, to see that, you know, just because they, they won this game. Uh, they won by a score of four to one. Uh, Dom Smith actually did eventually get a uh, RBI with an actual hit of the baseball, uh, not a walk. Uh, and then Diaz, of course, in true Diaz fashion, came in, closed the game, gave up two hits, gave you a mini heart attack, uh, but um, but he did his job. So now, with that Mets win, they do go back to 500. Just a quick uh, look at the standings. We'll start with the Mets. The Mets are now in second place. Besides the Phillies, who are in first, they are the only team in the division with a winning record. Or the yeah, with the only other team within the division with a winning record. The Braves lost, the Marlins won, but they're still sub 500, and the Nationals fall to 12 and 15. They are in the cellar. The Mets will face the Diamondbacks, and they will face Zach Gallen over the weekend. Who, by the way, Mets fans, you are in for a treat. 
Maybe you won't like the result. And I, I mean, listen, I can't predict the future, but watch him pitch. I, th- I believe he was in the Jazz Chisholm Jr. trade. It was a prospect for prospect trade. Uh, the Diamondbacks wanted Gallon. Gallon is is truly an unbelievable pitcher to watch. Um, he's got four amazing, you know, four plus pitches. He gets strikeouts. He's got pretty good command. Uh, it, you know, again, maybe we won't like the result, but he's a really fun pitcher to watch if you like baseball. Moving on to the American League, the Yankees are in fourth place despite being 16 and 15. It's not a uh, not exactly as easy in the AL East when you've got the Red Sox in first place. We'll see if that sticks. They're 19 and 13. They won again. We've got the Rays in second, 18 and 15. The Blue Jays in third. They're a couple games above 500. They they took a few from the A's, uh, and the Yankees, of course, as I mentioned, are in fourth, and the Orioles are sub 500 by one game, and they're in last. All right. Well, anyway, enough of me uh, rambling on. Let's get to the interview with Derek Cardi, the uh, creator of the Bat and the Bat X projection systems. Stick around. You're going to learn a lot as I did. So thanks again. We'll take a quick break and the interview with Derek Cardi. The following sports program is brought to you by the Loaded Bases Podcast. Everybody late. Everybody. Great. Today we have a very special guest, somebody who I have wanted to interview for quite a while. Um, he's the creator of the Bat and the Bat X projection systems. Uh, the bad and the bad X are widely considered the most reliable and dependent upon systems publicly available. Uh, Derek has been featured on ESPN. He's a writer. For, he has been a writer for ESPN.com. He's been featured on Baseball Tonight. His projection system, the Bat and the Bat X, are featured on Fangraphs and several other baseball pages. Uh, you could find his work on Roto Grinders currently and other places. Uh, Derek will correct me if I'm wrong, but Derek, thank you for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, you know, I I, uh, I actually really wanted to have you on partly because I, I like your work a lot, um, but also because, you know, uh, we've done some polls and, um, you know, some some stats. I have a bit of marketing background, so I wanted to do some surveys to uh, survey our, our listenership. And um, it's a pretty diverse group. Like by age, it doesn't it doesn't really discriminate in terms of like how our listeners consume baseball. And some of them are very traditional. I'd say about half, you know, just the very traditional East Coast Yankee fan, like wife beater on the corner kind of traditional fan. And then you have your, you know, your stat heads. So I really wanted to get you on just to sort of talk to the listeners who may not be familiar with what a projection system even is. So I guess briefly, I guess maybe just describe the, the quick version of what a projection system is and, and what it hopes to achieve. Yeah, so... I guess in in simplest terms, a projection system is trying to, you know, project what players are going to do in the future, whether that's over the course of, you know, the upcoming season, whether it's just today, um, you know, regardless of the time frame, it's basically um, our best possible guess as to how good a player is and what he's going to do going forward. I see. And that's, of course, 
pretty helpful for fantasy when you're trying, you know, you've got several guys on your bench, let's say, and you're like, oh, I don't know. This happens to me all the time where I'm like, I don't know whether I should play like Akil Badu or Corey Dickerson. Like, you know, the, these factors like umpires and, and weather and things like that, they, they give you the competitive advantage, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, projection systems range from being very simplistic to, to very complex. I, I like to think the bat is on the complex end where it accounts for uh, more things than, you know, as far as I'm aware, anything else really accounts for. Like you said, weather and umpires and park factors and platoon splits and, you know, quality of opposition and bullpens and just, you know, basically everything that matters um, or that I've found to matter, you know, goes into my projection system. I see. Yeah, that, that makes a lot. I mean, at least... For someone who understands math, like not at all, or let me a little bit, but that that actually does make sense. Um, so just uh, just to jump back a little bit, you know, it it does fascinate me. Like I said, I'm not really like a math person, so the idea of creating any sort of algorithm or model, like an equation, is kind of a step up for me. Um, what did what did, like tell me a little bit about yourself? Like, where are you from, and and sort of how did you you clearly have a math background? Like, how did that how did this come to be? Yeah, no, I've always loved math, you know, growing up in school, I was always, you know, straight A's, honor roll, the, you know, the whole deal, um, always loved math, you know, grew up playing sports, so I love sports as well, um, you know, whenever it was in, in high school that I came across Moneyball, that was when I kind of realized that math and sports kind of go together, and, and that was really the start of it for me, you know, I started, uh, started doing some stuff on my own, you know, a little, little blog that I created that wound up getting, getting noticed and things kind of snowballed from there. But, you know, really it was just kind of, you know, a good marriage of, of two of my, my passions and interests. And uh, what, uh, what sports did you play? Uh, primarily basketball. Okay. See, I'm, I'm the, uh, the other guy that uh, Alessandro, he's the basketball guy. I, I recently learned who playoff P was, and that's the the extent of my basketball knowledge. Um, so, but baseball is really more more quantifiable, right? Or unless that's maybe basketball is too, but baseball is kind of lends itself more to numbers, right? Uh, yes, yeah, at least uh, I mean basketball is actually uh, a little bit that way too. But baseball was the one that that first struck me as being really, um, I don't know, really. really uh, I don't know the word numbers work well with baseball. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, like everything in, in a sport like basketball, there's, there's more, uh, there's, it's a more dynamic game. You know, there's more interactions between players. There isn't like defined plays, you know, there, there's not like a stop in between action the way baseball right. is. You know, baseball pitcher throws the ball, hitter hits the ball, fielder fields the ball and that's it. And then you do it again. Um, so it's, it's very structured that way. Whereas other sports like basketball really, really aren't. Um, so, so numbers really do work very well with baseball. That's not to say that, you know, numbers are everything or that, you know, numbers are perfect, but, uh, numbers really are our most accurate way of, of predicting the future in baseball. For sure. And, and I'm sorry, did, where, where did you say you were from or did you say you were from? Uh, geographically. Yeah, like just where you grew up. I'm just, I'm just curious because, like, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm just uh, always curious again, like where people sort of get their start and. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Jersey, okay, okay. And does that, does that make you Mets guy, Yankees guy? Begrudgingly, a Mets guy. 
Uh, that is hilarious. You know, it's funny. It's been, I'm not- uh, it's been a rough time trying to be a Mets fan. Thankfully, I have fantasy where I care much more about, you know, whoever's on my fantasy team at any given uh, day or season, um, much more than I care about the Mets. But hopefully they're, they're starting to move in the right direction at this point. So I, I, as you said that, I, I had to resist like bursting out laughing because I am the resident Mets fan of this podcast. Uh, so I know I know all about the Mets, and and uh, I'm just I just have to ask like, what did you think of some of some of the offseason moves? Not not in your professional or your fan or whatever perspective you want to put it, but how how did you think of the, what the how did the Mets do? I mean, the biggest move was selling the team. You know, that's yes. the biggest thing because with the Wilpons, they the Mets were never going to be anything. You know, they they ran the team poorly. They they tried to have too much say, and in the baseball operations, they you know pinch pennies too much. Um, so having an owner that's willing to spend money is 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 a big step in the right direction. Uh, I don't know if they spent it as efficiently as they could have. The James McCann deal was just horrendous, like just inexcusably bad. Oh, really? Okay. I, I, uh, I, yeah, I wasn't sure. I, it's it's very hard to know like his work with Jerry Naren and some of that stuff framing. But you're you're not a fan. Wow. Okay, that's surprising. I mean, he's a below average hitter that you gave four years and forty million dollars to. When you have hitters of the exact same talent level or better who are signing one year, two million dollar deals. Um, like, yeah, maybe he's a, a better pitch framer than he used to be. Um, but we'd seen, you know, a third of a season of him being a good pitch framer after many, many years of him being one of the one of the worst in baseball. So that that just it's not worth the money, even if he is a great pitch framer, because his bat is just so lackluster. Like Wilson Ramos is a better hitter than James McCann. I said so at the time, not just because he's been crushing so far this year. Right, right. He's a better hitter than James McCann. He got a one year, two million dollar deal. Like it was just a waste of money to sign McCann. Okay, I'm. I'm. That's interesting. I see. I. I was mixed to be honest. I was happy that they got a catcher as early as they did. You know, like such an important position. I. I. I was like, if if J T. Realmuto wanted to play chicken, I was like, all right, look, this is such an important position. It doesn't have to be Realmuto. We don't have to play chicken. But it's interesting to hear you say that because I. I. I was mixed. I actually like the McCann signing just to the extent that I'm happy they had a warm body behind the plate. But. uh but I'm, but it's interesting to hear you say that. So, um, but um, yeah. So I guess just to shift a little bit back to back to the meat and potatoes, the projection systems. Um, so you know, I, I guess you're more East Coast than you're New Jersey, and I'm sure you've heard the curmudgeony sort of like talk show host, like stereotypical guys. Not going to name names, I guess for I don't know for the sake of business, maybe getting a job somewhere. But um, you, you, I'm sure you understand like the the type of. Uh, uh, archetype I'm talking about where and it seems like every couple of years or whatever like Pakoda comes out and they just sort of take like these cheap shots at projection systems like the Orioles have a zero percent chance at at making the playoffs like they don't know anything about baseball like I guess and and I'm sure they have influence you know on again like the, the traditional fan who I guess probably makes up somewhat of our of our listenership so again tying back to why I was excited to have you on. So I guess like, what would you say to somebody who may have some contempt for like too much math in baseball or somebody who doesn't understand projection systems and like why they're valuable? Like, I guess, you know, what would you say, not necessarily having to convince anybody of anything, but what would you say to somebody who may not like projection systems or not understand them? I guess it depends on, on how they, they come at it. If they come at it from a, 
a place of wanting to wanting to learn and wanting to understand more, I would be very uh, patient and I would help them with whatever questions they have. If they're, you know, the the know-it-all, you know, archetypal talk show host where where he knows everything and then math is stupid, then uh, <laughs> I I tell him to go fuck himself or uh, or I just ignore him. <laughs> fair yeah I, I think that's probably the fair response to some of these talk show hosts because um, i mean they don't know anything they have no credentials a lot of them like they're just making they're just making stuff up and so like you have no evidence to back up your points i have all the evidence in the world and uh you know if you don't want to believe it like that's fine but you're wrong yeah yeah I, 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 that's a fair point i agree with you but you're wrong like yeah i, I feel i completely feel that like that's that's sort of how I feel. Are you know? I'm sure you've had this too, and I've I've had some friends talk about this, where you like try and have a conversation with somebody who's kind of not even necessarily older, but just more traditional in their in their uh, ways, and you try and bring up stats and like, oh well, how do they know? It's like, oh, okay, like this is this is conversation's kind of over. Like, <laughs> there's nothing you can really say at that point. Um, there, there's some people who just don't want to learn and uh if they don't want to learn then you can't force them to yeah no for sure that's that's kind of like a non-starter and that's that, that, i'm glad you said about like if somebody was wanted to learn right that's i think a cool approach because it's like well at least you maybe you don't know but i'm not going to be like a snob and sort of be like oh you don't know like you, you teach them which is i think that's really cool so never be like that um you know if people are are uh you know being condescending about it you know then then that's a different thing but if someone is just genuinely like has never heard of these concepts or you know just wants to know more about them and is you know ignorant about them now because they've never been exposed to it then then that's different like i'm always happy to help people learn if, if that's kind of the approach that they're taking yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear you say that because, again, also, like, there's this stereotype, I think, of people in the baseball industry, sometimes warranted, but most, I think most times not, where it's like, I think they're a little condescending, but it doesn't sound like you are, which is cool. Like, because, like, I, like I said, I really like your projection system. So it's cool to know that you're not a dick. So that's awesome. Um, <laughs> um, so I guess also, like, I wanted to just jump into some of the questions about the subjective nature. Again, I know that like, you know, this is still a business, so I'm not going to ask you to reveal anything that would compromise your uh, strategic edge in your industry because there are other projection systems out there. Um, again, I think that, you know, yours is, is the one that I rely on. But um, so I guess like some of the more subjective uh, situations in a projection system or, or, or elements or variables I know that there are over 150 variables that you use, um, and you know, with the Bat X, you introduce Statcast data as well. Um, so, but I mean, how how would you? I guess like maybe the right word is weigh certain things over others. Like when you're using linear weights, you do have to assign a numerical value. But when it's something sort of subjective, doesn't it seem like that's a bit? I mean, that's a bit difficult, right? So. I guess how do you weigh some of the things like that are pretty subjective, like an umpire, let's say, or um, you know, the weather or something? Like, how, how do you go about doing that in sort of like layman's terms? Yeah. So the good thing about this type of stuff is that we can certainly think about it and talk about it in a subjective way, but it, it can also be made objective. You know, you can quantify these things. So you know, we we know that weather 
you know, we know what the weather is. You know, it is 72 degrees out today, and the wind is 15 miles an hour, and it's blowing out in the direction of left field in this park, and this is the humidity, and this is the air pressure, and, and we know all these things. And we know all these things for, um, you know, many, many years back. So we can look at the last, you know, whatever, 5, 10, 20 years of baseball, and we know what the weather was in every single game. And so we can look at it and we can say, okay, well, given uh, the other context that we know in the game, like these were the, the hitters and pitchers, and this was the park that it was taking place in and everything else, um, and we kind of neutralize for those things. We say, okay, um, assuming that, you know, all those things are held constant and, you know, it's the same everywhere, um, what is the actual impact of, of temperature? You know, when it's 70 degrees, what happens relative to when it's 71 degrees or 72 degrees or 75 degrees or 100 degrees? And you can quantify that and you can kind of see over a big sample size of time of baseball games what the impact of weather is on various events, you know, in a baseball game. And so, um, you know, it, we can definitely talk about it in a subjective way, you know, okay, well, hot weather is good for hitters and cold weather is good for pitchers. And, but we can also quantify it down to, down to the exact degree because we have all this great historical data, you know, showing us what happens. Right. So the like, let's say there's a, a hot day and, and or like the, the forecast, let's say before the game is like something and then it turns out to be something else later. The historical data that you have, you're not scrambling like, oh, no, the weather forecast before the game was different than what it is. You have data that says, well, I still know what it is if it's 54 degrees rather than, you know, what it what like what it was an hour ago. Um, so you're saying that basically the historical data is what makes these projection systems uh, accurate. Right, exactly. And, and there's no other way to do it. Otherwise, we would be guessing, you know, we would say, okay, well, it's 83 degrees today in, uh, in Truist Field in Atlanta. Um, okay, so what does that mean? Um, and, and the only way to know what it means is, is by looking at, okay, what happens historically when it's 83 degrees? Um, and, and that's very easy. Well, not easy, but like it's, it's very possible. <laughs> Doesn't sound easy. Um, yeah, and, and obviously we are going to be um, reliant on the quality of uh, weathermen, you know, that are going to tell us that sure. it's going to be 83 degrees today in Atlanta, and maybe they're wrong sometimes, but usually not by a lot. Maybe, you know, instead of 83 degrees, it, it actually winds up being 81 degrees, and, and right. ultimately that's not the end of the world. Um, you know, it, it they're never going to be off by like 30 degrees. Like, you're never going to see on your phone, okay – it's uh, it's gonna be 80 degrees uh, this afternoon outside my house, and you walk outside and it and it's 40 degrees. Like that, no, that, that yeah, happens. yeah, yeah. No, that's and, and I think really, I mean, there has to be an element of like you're doing the absolute best with all the information you have available, like the best information available. Like it's, I think, no projection system's ever going to be like a hundred percent perfect because there are just moving variables. There's so much statistical noise that. For it to be as accurate as it is, all things considered, is pretty damn impressive. Um, so I guess, you know. I, I think that's a great point because I, I think that's one of the things that critics a lot of times will, you know, these people that we talked about, this this straw man, you know, of uh, people who hate projection systems. A lot of times the, the criticisms that I see and that I get are, well, your projection system, you know, was off on this guy or it wasn't 100% accurate on, on this team or, like, whatever. And it's like, that's not the point. No yeah. one is, is trying to be 100% accurate. No one believes that they can be 100% right. accurate. It is actually impossible 
because of just because of the nature of sample sizes, you know, Mike Trout could be in the absolute best spot. He can be in Coors Field against the worst pitcher in baseball, and uh, he can go 0 for 4 because he only gets four at bats. Like the sample size right. is small in baseball, no matter no matter what you're looking at. And so you're not trying to be perfect. You're trying to be better than you know than the next best guy, or better than the alternative approach. And so the the critics that are like, you know, well, projections aren't perfect, so why should I look at them? Because they're better than whatever you're doing. They're better than whatever your mind is coming up with. Like whatever kind of analysis you're doing in your human brain, that's worse than the projection. So I'll just take the projection. I'll I'll be wrong, but I'll I'll be less wrong. For sure. And I think two things. I guess one, conversely, there's it's also not not as it's not impressive at all. It's like if you guess correctly, like. I had a friend a couple of years ago that like said he predicted that a rod coming back from PEDs in his age, like 40 season was going to do super well. And I was like, that doesn't like, that's a terrible guess. Like I, that's just not a good guess. And he was right, but it's like, you don't get credit for being right. If your guess was stupid, like it just, you know, it's, it's kind of the reverse of that, which is like, yeah, I may be wrong, but at least I have like a consistent methodology that uses a ton of variables to come up with an answer and it's like yeah if i'm wrong like i kind of still have a better approach than your guess that happened to be right um you know and i and i don't think people in, in the industry on the fringes i guess like get held accountable in the same way um because just this is very uh i guess not mainstream so maybe it's like less accepted but i don't i mean when you say straw man i i sort of agree with what you're saying like i don't think people are actively like anti-projection systems i just think some people just don't fully get them and and it it, it scares them yeah and and honestly i kind of said straw man to be nice because there are definitely people out there who are (laughs) anti-projection systems i have run into them they they do exist i could point to many examples of it that's shocking Um, but but you're right like it is much more about the process than it is about you know the individual result and and i think that's just kind of the way even just society in general is, is more results based than process based. Right. And so people who aren't familiar with projection systems, they're coming at it from this results based um, mindset, and that's just not the right way to, to look at it. You know, it doesn't matter what happened in this one isolated incident. If you applied a bad process to it and you got a good result, like good for you that one time. But if you continue to apply that process to every situation you're going to be wrong more often than than you're right. And so it doesn't matter that you've got the one result right. You know, like, we care about projecting every baseball player, not just one. For sure. that I'm glad you said that about, you know, um, process versus result. Because I think, I mean, our, culturally, we are definitely a results-oriented culture. And also, like, I coach baseball, and I noticed that a lot of the dads and moms coaching are very results-oriented and that's not really a way to learn at all. And it's just a, it's honestly a terrible mindset. Um, when, I mean, not to get too tangential, but like when a kid gets upset and you're like, well, we practice all week and you are not making the same mistakes over and over again. So you shouldn't feel bad. Like I run into that so often and it's just, it's kind of weird. Cause I'm like, why is everybody so results oriented? Um, so I'm really glad to hear you say that. Cause I, I completely agree with that, that mindset. Yeah, I, I am totally with you. Yeah, and so okay, so just to uh, to pivot as well, um, and I will talk a little bit more about some of the more sub- more subjective things. Uh, we'll jump back on that, but I wanted to ask you, right? Because 
I believe the timing when you started the Bat and the Bat X, or rather not started, rather completed it and, and brought it public, there were some projection systems existing already. As I mentioned, Pakoda, I think Nefi was already around for a while. Sean uh, Marcel, I believe, was also around for a pretty long time. And others. I'm, I mean, there was a bunch of others, public and private. Um, but, I mean, look, well, one could look at that and be like, all right, you know, the market's already saturated. You know, why would I Why would I bring, uh, you know, something to market? There are so many projection systems. But you clearly felt like either the market was missing something or you kind of just felt like you could do it better or both. I mean, what were what was your mindset where you where you really felt like you could bring this to market? Like what, what was the need you felt needed to be uh, met? Yeah, so so obviously there were other systems out there. Um, I definitely thought I had um, certain ways of, of looking at things that the other systems weren't doing, you know, accounting for context and, and things like that I thought was really important and it didn't seem like other systems were really doing that. Um, and also, uh, the, the first time I released a projection system was all these other systems you mentioned, Pakoda, you know, Sean, Marshalls, um, they, they were season-long projection systems. Uh, the bat originally was uh, just for, for DFS, for daily fantasy, and there right. really weren't any systems for that. So I really saw that market as, as a big kind of uh, you know, opportunity because nothing, nothing existed, especially nothing as, as good as what I thought I could build. I see. I mean, that's good. Listen, you know, you got to do what's what others aren't doing in, in the market. I, I that's that's awesome. That's cool. And yeah, I do think like especially when I found out that the bat used Statcast data, I was like, OK, this is dope. This is the like I'm so glad someone did this because this is something that not only like like I wasn't 100 percent sure necessarily like measuring the competitive advantages of the bat over other things but like i understood a lot of the stat cast data so i was like this is dope because this makes my enjoyment of baseball you know even more so because i understand savant and i understand you know project i guess what projection systems hope to achieve so finding out you know i think it was last year two years ago that you were combining those i think those are dope and i think fans if you know who are listening to this should get excited and check those out because they just make baseball just like more enjoyable. Like there's so many tools to do that. Um, but I did want to just kind of pivot again back to sort of the more subjective things because, um, you know, like, okay, so I, I read um, and I mentioned that I'm not like a huge basketball fan, but I read a Malcolm Gladwell book a couple of years ago where he mentioned the hot hand and how it wasn't like really a thing. Um, like statistically at least, where it's like a player is not more likely statistically to make another shot after they've made a shot prior, which would be a hot hand, which would be, a, you know, a, a you know, like a player who's for whatever reason, statistically or not, was just more likely to continue to make baskets because they've already made one, right? That's what being hot is if you break it down. So I was wondering if you believe in heating up and like you know the like we've we've seen again pundits on talk radio be like why did you bench that guy he was hot we're like we may have been like a platoon split but you're like that guy was hot I don't care if it's a lefty or righty like how do you see something subjective like being hot in baseball or being cold uh, I view it largely as as nonsense you know it's it's obviously a, a popular topic and something that a lot of people you know really try to to buy into and you know put a lot of weight into but like you said statistically it really doesn't matter and, and it's really hard for people to wrap their head around that who believe in in hot streaks and cold streaks 
because they're seeing it with their own eyes and because the human brain is designed in such a way to try to uh, make sense out of out of patterns to try to detect patterns you know back in you know the dawn of man back in caveman days like detecting patterns was was a good thing you know like if i if i put my hand near this this hot thing like it's gonna hurt me so like i shouldn't do that anymore or like you know i shouldn't go near the the saber-toothed tiger den like whatever like <laughs> that stuff was useful um but it's not useful for for statistics and stuff like this even though our brains are kind of hardwired for it um it doesn't exist you know the the math is so much more important than what it Ever, you know our brains are trying to tell us because the math is is kind of infallible you know um so like we can see that a guy is on a hot streak like hot streaks exist in the sense that they happen like you know this guy over his last you know 20 or 30 plate appearances he has a, a 500 batting average and he has four home runs and, and he's really hot and nobody's denying that like that happened that's real the guy is on a hot streak the question that is more important and that a lot of people kind of just they just don't figure out that it's a different thing is knowing that a guy is on that hot streak is he any more likely in his next game to continue to hit well than than a guy who's not on a hot streak and the answer is no if you look at guys that are on hot streaks like that and comparably talented guys that are not on hot streaks and you look at what they do the next day or the next at bat or the next shot in basketball or whatever it is, you look and they perform exactly the same. The hot streak does not predict what is going to happen next. And that's the most important part because all we care about is what's going to happen next. And a lot of people just, they can't, they can't wrap their mind around it. They're like, this guy's hot. Of course he's going to keep hitting. Uh, when the answer is no, he, he is no more likely to keep hitting than anybody else. So I guess if I'm, if I'm hearing what you're saying right, like you, you, you do believe in the sense that, excuse me, you do believe in the sense that players, I mean, this is just true, right? That like players will get multiple hits in a row. Um, it's just, you can't, nobody really can predict how long that'll happen. So on a day-to-day basis, or even in that bat to at bat basis, statistically you're, it's being essentially kind of hubristic to like to predict that you can predict when the hot streak will end or begin. And because you can't do that, um, it, you can't really plan for it. And that's not like a strategic advantage. Am I getting that right? Yep, exactly. You know, statistically, you can't predict when the hot streak is going to end. If you want to make the most accurate guess possible as to when the hot streak is going to end, your best guess is always right now. That That's, that's it. It's always more likely to end right now than any other outcome. So you're better off just sort of going about your business, factoring all the other variables, not yeah, just you're better off ignoring it because it doesn't matter, practically speaking. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think we both agree that if like a New York baseball manager said that or did that, he, he would be chastised. I mean, I, like depending on the organization, probably, but at least publicly he would. And that that's interesting. Like um, he would be by talking heads, but he would be the talk of the town among stats people because he would be the smartest manager alive. <laughs> right. Okay. That's interesting because I was, I was going to say too, like, again, take this with like 50 grains of salt. Cause I know like nothing about basketball, but I, I have watched games before where my friends are like, cause I've talked to them about the Ma- Malcolm Gladwell uh, thing. And they, they were like, look, how can you tell me this player's not hot? Like, like he's clearly making like five buckets in a row. 
um, and he, you know, he's he's on right now. He's feeling himself. But you would argue that it's like, well, you can't predict when this will end, so it's not like a strategic advantage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, hot streaks are going to happen because we're dealing with small sample sizes. In small sample sizes, random stuff happens. You know, if you flip a coin a million times, it's going to come up on heads and tails. You know, half a million times each. If you flip a coin five times, you know, it's very likely, or not likely, but it's very possible, it's going to land on heads five of those times. That coin is hot. Um, but it's just because the sample size is small. Like, the coin isn't hot. You flip it another million times, it's going to even out. Um, you know, and you, if you flip it the next time, you flip it the sixth time, it's not more likely to be heads just because it's been hot for the first five flips. Um, you know, it's just, that's how sample size works. The smaller the sample size, the more likely you get you know, kind of these clustered outcomes like that. Cool. I, I'm, I'm glad I understand that. Cause I, I, you know, I, I kind of, I, I still, I, I know statistically you're correct and I don't necessarily disagree. I just, I just can't imagine like the emotional side of that where it's like, if a player is do, I mean, and these are separate arguments obviously, but if you, if a player's like super hot or something or super cold, let's say, um, and then you decide to like bench them, um, it, I think there probably are some like emotional elements that may affect the players outcomes. Like for, for example, Francisco Lindor is super cold. Maybe if you, however you handle him might add extra pressure uh, or something like that. But I mean, statistically I would, I would guess at least don't want to put words in your mouth, but you'd argue that ultimately like over a game to game basis, that probably doesn't matter either. Right. So, um, yeah, so th there's a couple things in there. First, the one other thing I want to say is that, like, a lot of times, like, there there will be people listening to this right now, and they'll be like, "There's no way this guy this this guy is right." Like, I played baseball or basketball right, or right, whatever right. in high school, and I know that hot streaks are real. I know what it feels like to be hot, and uh, I do too. Like, I played sports too. I know what it feels <laughs> like to be hot. Right. Um. But then. Why doesn't it actually happen? If you look like we have data on sports, like people act like stats are like these things that like we're just pulling out of thin air. It's like, no, <laughs> it's a record of what actually happened. We're just looking at it from a bigger perspective than just like the one game that you're watching on TV or that you played. Like we're looking at what actually happened to many, 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 many real athletes. And this is what happens. And hot streaks don't continue. Um, and so like people just, they don't understand that because, oh, I played, I know this, this stack guy doesn't know. Um, but in terms of like Lindor and cold streaks, that's a little bit different. Statistically cold streaks, um, are, are the same as hot streaks. You can't predict when they're going to start or stop, um, on average. But I do think there are times where cold streaks can be real and not necessarily because, um, well, the, the reason they're real is because sometimes there is something wrong with a guy, either psychologically or, or mechanically. You know, right. his, his mechanics are off and uh, more injury. Just, yeah. he, he's not the same guy that, that he used to be because he's just doing things differently and, and he's broken somehow. And that is the rare case. That's not most of the cases, but that is going to be a thing sometimes. And, and a good manager or a good scout or a good player development guy. Um, we'll be able to pick up on that. And obviously the subjective stuff, you know, the, the psychological impact, like a good manager will have a better sense of that than any statistician or talking head or, or anybody will, will have. Um, I think it's really, um, 
honestly kind of uh, kind of rude and presumptuous of a lot of talking heads to be like to, to like assume that they know what's going on inside a player's head because like you don't know that um, the, only the player does and maybe the manager has some insight into it but like none of us can really speak to that with any uh, you know any real um, insight. Right. Yeah. And I agree. Cause I do, I do believe that. Well, I started coaching as I mentioned and like, it's kind of given me this really awesome perspective. It's taught me a lot about baseball in general, really like at the lower levels. I mean the lowest levels, like how human beings like compete. And it's just like, as kids, obviously these are not adult human beings, but it, I do agree. It's, it's extremely presumptuous to assume that somebody just like who doesn't know this person at all can, can like, diagnose them like I guess maybe if you have a baseball background like there's some at bats where you're like okay maybe Francisco Lindor's casting a little bit or something very minor mechanically that probably may not even make a difference but um but I I actually that's a good point because I I noticed that too um but uh yeah so I just also wanted to I have a couple more questions just hopefully have we have time uh I don't know if you're doing what you if you got to go but uh just a couple more so one of the things that I wanted to ask you was about BABIP um, because I've heard BABIP used in many different contexts, like in terms of predicted, like predictions. And, you know, I've noticed, um, I guess specifically, right? So for those who don't know, batting, bat, BABIP, excuse me, is batting average on balls in play. Basically, it's like, you know, a ball in play is could be a foul ball. It could be a fair ball, but it's in play. So um, I actually don't know if home runs count. I, I do. I should know that, but I don't. It's basically batting average without home runs. Gotcha. Okay. Because I was about to say, like, I don't think that I don't think home runs would count because you can't play like make a play on a home run. Uh, but so BABIP to me has always been a little confusing, I guess, because first of all, right, like the um, the normalization time of BABIP is I think over a full like it's it's more games than a full year. I think that's that's correct, right? It's like about two hundred something games, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, for Babbitt, yeah, to, yeah, it depends on if we're talking about um, hitters or pitchers. I think you know hitters. For hitters, you know, yeah, it stabilizes in like the statistical way um, after like a couple seasons, and and for pitchers, it's like like eight years or ten years or, or something like really high. Okay, because I was just gonna say like I've heard people specifically really with like two players that have stood out to me. So um, for one, right, like Max Kepler is somebody who's a great hitter not huge in like he's a he's like good i guess like above average in terms of like exit velocity and like barrels and things like that but he's he's had some great seasons but his babip is always like super low and the the bat x uh you know is it's pretty in line with his with his career low-ish babips like usually i mean i don't want to generalize but I guess on average, I'd guess that like a, a hitter who has like 36 home runs or, or even, like, you know, who's a good hitter uh, would have a relatively high BABIP. But I, I'm guessing you're going to correct me because I don't know if that's how that works. It's, I'm guessing it's more complicated. And then conversely, like Michael Conforto last year had, I think, a 416 BABIP. And you hear people in the industry say like, oh, well, that's going to regress. So in my mind, it's like, well, I'm – like I get the logic because a 416 BABIP for Michael Conforto seems like that's very hard to sustain. So you'd guess it's going to regress just because things regress to the mean. But at the same time, if BABIP takes you know longer than one season to normalize uh, or or stabilize, then it seems like that's not necessarily a statement you can make. So I guess I'm just wondering like how one even I guess the projection systems right. 
uh, use BABIP and how they how they factor in like a BABIP that's super high or super low. And I guess also jumping in. Well, I'll ask this. I was going to say like how you glean the 2020 sample size questions, but I'll, I'll save that for, for after because this is also, you know, a complicated question. Right. So like a guy like Conforto where he has the super high BABIP, um, uh, yeah, even though it takes um, time to stabilize, that, that's, that's why you have to assume that he got lucky and that it's going to come down because – how do I explain it? Like the default assumption has to be for every player. The default assumption can't be Michael Conforto is a true 400 Babbitt hitter because <laughs> right. nobody is. You look at players historically, nobody sustains a 400 Babbitt over many, many years. Like it doesn't happen. Um, and so the default assumption has to be that this guy, that every guy is much closer to, to average than they are to any extreme end of the scale. And so that, that, that's the default assumption that you have to start with. And then you say, okay, well, if I know nothing about this player, if he hasn't taken a single major league at bat, single minor league at bat, if I know nothing about this guy other than he has a major league contract, I have to assume that he has a league average BABIP of like 290 or 300 or whatever it is. Um, and then you have to adjust from there. And that's kind of what a projection system does. It st starts with a default assumption and then based on extra data and evidence, it will project a guy higher or lower than that based on, based on the other evidence. So if we have 200 plate appearances of Michael Conforto being a 400 BABIP hitter, and we know that BABIP is super random and super noisy and super unstable, um, we're not going to have a lot of confidence in that 400 BABIP. We're going to project him a lot closer to the middle because it's very easy to have a 400 BABIP just by sheer luck. I see. Okay. And so then conversely with, um, Max Kepler, uh, you, the projection systems, uh, actually have him pretty much in line. If you, if you extend his 2020 numbers over the course of a full season, they're pretty consistent, not only with his career BABIPs, but just his career low bab. like his, his BABIPs are always in like the two sixties, two seventies. And I'm not saying like Max Kepler, I think is a good hit like a, a an above average hitter not like an amazing hitter but he does have 36 home runs so he he can you know hit for some prestigious power or prolific power rather um what uh how, like do, do you dock point i mean i'm trying to phrase this in a way that that actually makes sense like when a player has a super low babbit like that are you basing it off of like their career trends like because i know kepler's like a pole hitter so he, i'm sure he hits a lot of foul balls and a lot of his hits are home runs a player that has like a career low BABIP, um, who's a pretty good hitter. Like, how do you address that? Because that seems something like, you know, he, I, w I mean, I don't know. I would guess that a player that was a good hitter would have a higher BABIP, but with him, that's that seems like not the case. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's never an easy answer to everything, and it's not right. like. Um, I or any projection person is like going in and looking at every individual player and like doing this manually. Like sure. there are, um, you know, algorithms and whatnot that are in place to kind of automatically do this. But just looking at Kepler, like, like we said, Babbitt takes about two years to, to stabilize and stabilize doesn't mean once we reach two years, that's a magic number. And now we can, you know, take exactly, you know, what he's done and, and that's exactly who he is like that's stabilization when we talk about stabilization that is the point at which it is more accurate to trust what the player has done 
than just assuming that he is league average. Um, and and it's a spectrum, you know, at that point, basically, if you want to form your most accurate projection, once you reach that stabilization point, exactly, uh, you would take half of what the player's done and half of just assuming that he's league average. And that would be your most accurate projection. So it's not like, um, once you get to a stabilization point, like it's, you know, like that's all you need. Um, there's still more beyond that, but if we assume the Babbitt stabilizes after two years, um, that that's a long time in the course of, you know, like a single season, but over the course of a career, uh, you know, it's, it's not that hard to reach that point. You know, Max Kepler has probably played, you know, you add up all his plate appearances combined. I would think what, like five, five full seasons. So yeah. like we have a pretty decent idea of who Max Kepler is in terms of his Babbitt because his sample size relative to the stabilization rate is, is fairly large. You know, he has a career 250, 255 ish Babbitt, I think. Um, yeah, it's around like, so after, yeah, it's around after five like. years of data, like we can kind of say with, with some certainty that, you know, that that's probably close to who he is. And, and we have stat cast data that we can look at and whatnot. Um, but yeah, just because a guy is a good power hitter doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a good Babbitt hitter. Like they are different skills. They do take different, you know, different components, you know, power or home runs is, you know, it, it's about raw power. It's about hitting the ball hard. It's about hitting the ball in the air. And, um, that, that can be a different thing than the skills it takes, um, you know, to have a high Babbitt. If a guy is hitting the ball in the hair, in the air every single time, um, some of those are going to be home runs, but a lot of them are going to be lazy flyouts. Um, you know, the, the batting average on fly balls is a lot lower than the batting average on ground balls. Ground balls are home runs 0% of the time, right. <laughs> but they are hits more frequently than fly balls are. We're so, getting a guy to work on that though, but. Yeah, um, you know, speed plays a big uh, a big factor in in Babbitt. Being able to you know leg out balls is is important. Where speed makes no difference whatsoever for for home runs. So there are different skills that contribute to each thing, and a good projection system will will kind of account for that. Okay, so it sounds to me like you're saying that the sample size is one thing, and then a, being a Babbitt, uh, you know, a player that Babbitt uh, ele- or elevates using Babbitt is much different than a player like who hits home runs. Okay, I, I get what you're saying because, yeah, Kepler is also like a pole hitter, so I'm sure a lot of his hard-hit balls go foul or they get hit into shifts and things like that. So, yeah, um, shifts are going to be a thing too. Yeah. yeah there, there, there's no, there's never just one answer. There's right. always a lot of things that, you know, that explain, you know, player performance. Right, and that, and I think it's also good that, like, I mean, I don't want to – maybe granular is not the right word because like we could go through every single player and probably like, and that's, that's also why, which is jumping into my, uh, my next question, which is you have a scouting background. You, uh, are a graduate of scout school, which is something that I've thought about. Um, you know, I, I don't think I have time right now, but, uh, it's like, you know, I did, I did start coaching to learn more about baseball and like the, the lowest, like the, you know, the most basic levels, um, what what made you want to that's that's a very interesting uh, route like what made you want to do that and how do you use scouting in your projection systems and if so how yeah i wanted to to learn scouting because um because i was a stats guy because i would i like i you know i knew the number side i was building my projection system like i knew how powerful all that stuff was but i knew that it wasn't everything you know scouting is is very important as well you know, the numbers tell us um, what happened, but the scouting tells us why something happened. And a lot of times the why 
um, is more important. We talked earlier about process over results. Um, scouting is really a more process level way of evaluating, you know, what players, who players are. Um, and, and scouting presents its own sets of challenges because a lot of it is not quantifiable. It's, it's more subjective. But a lot of scouting now has become quantified, um, especially on the pitching end. You know, we have um, these, these great pitch tracking systems that tell us the exact trajectory of the pitch to the plate and the release point and the velocity and the movement and the spin and all these other cool things that um, you used to have to only you used to only be able to uh, evaluate that stuff with your with your eyes. Um, but now we have all this quantified, which is which is great. And so um, anything that is quantified is is capable of being put into a projection system. That's awesome. Yeah, I. I also like, I really have a soft spot for scouts because I read Dollar Sign on the Muscle, um, A Diamond of Praise. And I, every time I read a scouting book, I'm like, this is just such a an awesome, just like way to look at baseball. Um, so, you know, uh, kudos to you for for, uh, for doing that. That's something I think I'm, I might do it at some point when I have uh, some, you know, like a, a block of free time. Um, and also, I'm glad to hear you say that, too, because then the, the people that hate on projection systems, like these guys don't know anything about baseball. It's like, well, actually... I went to scout school, so, you know, sorry, like I kind of probably know a little bit more than you as well on that front, too. So that's cool. Um, and I guess just like the last question, um, thank you, by the way, for your time and all this. Um, you know, I really appreciate it. Uh, so the last question I had just involved um, uh, like regression in terms of like breakouts versus players who are going to, I guess, just like struggle or maybe like slow down in their careers. What are some of the, the factors that you look for? Um, in terms of, yeah, yeah, like a player who may be ready to break out or a player who's sort of probably going to slide a bit in their production. What are some of the play, the, the factors that you look for, the elements that you look for uh, in, when projecting those things? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, all, it's all automated. You know, everything goes into the projection and it kind of determines that stuff, you know, for me. Um, but, you know, you've kind of mentioned a couple times the the bad X is 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 fairly new. It incorporates Statcast data, like that kind of stuff has has really helped kind of identify the types of guys that are maybe more or less likely to um, outperform what they what their surface numbers have been, just because you know the surface numbers were accrued over a small sample size, and the stuff that they're doing kind of under the surface, the peripheral stuff, the Statcast stuff. Um, indicates that they're a better or worse player than what those surface numbers say they are. So, you know, this, you know, Vlad Guerrero Jr., great example. Vlad Guerrero Jr. is is crushing it this year. He He's fantastic. And the bad X was higher on him than every other projection system coming into this year. Love Vlad Guerrero Jr. And, and everyone was like, well, he has a low launch angle. So, like, how can you project him to hit 30-plus home runs? And it's like, well, um, because he even with a low launch angle – he should have been hitting more home runs the last couple years anyway. He was getting unlucky with his home runs, and people were just saying, well, he has low home runs and a low launch angle, so he can't hit home runs. But he should have been hitting more home runs to begin with, even with the low launch angle. And then you consider that he hits the ball really hard and his barrel rate and all his exit velocity stuff and everything else, and it's like, well, um, like he does a lot of things really, really well. If he raises his launch angle even a little bit, like he's just going to explode. And even if he doesn't, he's still going to be better than he has been because that's what the peripherals say he should be doing. So like it's, it's always, you know, more than one thing. Um, but a lot of the stat cast stuff really kind of has helped us with that sort of thing. 
Cool. And, and I just want to, I will promise this is the last question. Um, for players who have no major league experience, like, I mean, AKA rookies, uh, how would you, how do you go about projecting those players? Uh, bang my head against the wall. Um, <laughs> right. No, you, you do the best you can, you know, you use what data you have. And obviously we don't have as robust data for minor league players as we do for major league players. Um, we use their minor league data. We make adjustments because the context of, Playing in the minor leagues is very different All than playing in the major yeah. leagues. So you adjust for context the best you can. You adjust for aging. You, you do the best you can with the data that you have at your disposal. And minor league players' projections will have a wider range of outcomes than major league player projections because the data itself is not as good and because players uh, each have their own unique physiology. They each you know, grow and decline at, at different rates and at different points. Um, and a lot of times that's one of the things people really get on projection system people about because it's rare that you see a, a, a rookie project project really well. Um, you know, more likely they, they project to be kind of just average or a little below average. You know, Fernando Tatis came up and every single projection system, you know, projected him to be a well below average hitter his first year. And everyone was like, uh, especially after the fact, like, oh, what a terrible projection. Projection systems are so stupid. How did they know he was such a good prospect? We knew he was going to be great. Um, and, and that's all fine and good, but that's a, a case of results over process again. For every Fernando Tatis, there are five Byron Buxtons or Yohan Moncadas or uh, Austin Meadows or Dansby Swanson or like all these guys who were also, you know, top, you know, one to five prospects in baseball who came up and in their first year were kind of just okay. Um, Mike Trout in his first cup of coffee was kind of just okay. Um, so, you know, you have to do the best you can with the data you have, and you have to realize that a projection is just the average of many, many possible outcomes. Um, and sometimes guys are going to hit the high end of that outcome, and it doesn't make the projection wrong. It just means that that's the guy that hit the high end of the outcome, which we know those guys are going to exist. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. I don't even remember what the question was. <laughs> no, no, it's listen. You've, you're you've giving so much useful information that I don't even care what the question was. It, it was about like projecting rookies, but yeah, I, I um. That is that is interesting to hear you say that because like I mean the park factors in minor leagues. I remember when Pete Alonso came up and everybody was you know scouts said that a pickoff throw to first was a gamble. That that was a quote from an unnamed scout and not not to dunk on scouts at all, but it's more just like you know the the there's always a ton of context. Like the fields in the minor leagues are sometimes not very good. So playing first base, you know when there's like a bumpy uh, infield. Uh, you know, if you've ever played like softball or something and the fields are unkept, like that matters. Like it, it's not going to be the same in the the major league. So, um, you know, you even attempting to uh, project minor leagues is, is a very tall task. So anybody trying to just dunk on you for that is just it, that's just completely unfair. And it's honestly just way too easy. Like that's it's so easy to like not do anything and then sort of like sit there like, of course, you're wrong. Like, you know, so. I think it's a, it's a, you know, at least awesome that, that your projection systems, uh, don't shy away from that, that task and that, and that, uh, uh, you know, uh, thing that you're doing. So, um, really great stuff. And, um, I think that's, that's about my last question. I, I'm going to cap it there only because I could sit here and ask you questions all day. And I'm sure you've got a lot of stuff you're, that you're not doing to, to do this interview. So 
Derek Cardi, thank you so much. If there's anything you'd like to plug in before we go or. Yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Derek Hardy. You can find the bat and the bat X projection systems, um, at a number of different places, depending on what you're trying to use it for, for season long fantasy. You can find it at Fangraphs. It's free over there. Um, for daily fantasy, you can subscribe over at Roto grinders and for sports betting, you can find it at EV analytics. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm one in three in my league right now, but that's not because of the Fan, uh, that's not because of the bad or the bad X. I did use your projection systems, and it, the players I use for your projection systems actually are uh, are helping me, so that's good. But listen, Derek, thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate your time. This I learned a ton from this interview, as I guessed I would, and I'm sure I'm sure our listeners did too. So uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks again. The moon and the planet today, and new hopes for knowledge and peace today, and therefore as we set sail. and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked.